This episode is brought to you by Geek Grind Coffee Company. Steven, you're you're a comic book guy, right? I am. Yeah, I like comics. Um, are you familiar with Valiant Comics? Uh, I am. You mean the company created by uh, Jim Shooter in the late 80s? Yes, the very same. Um, yeah. Are you familiar with uh, the Shadow Man comics from Valiant? I am familiar. I have not read them. Well, let me tell you, he's pretty awesome. He's got voodoo powers. I he, mean, that's pretty great. He protects the city of New Orleans. Okay. And now, thanks to Geek Grand Coffee, Valiant Comics has partnered with them, and he has two of his very own coffee blends that you can purchase. Oh, wow. So not just one, but two sh- comics-inspired coffees. That I've never heard of something like that before. That's really awesome. Yeah, he's got uh, the Spirit of the Loa private blend, uh, 100% single-source small-lot Colombian from the uh, Geek Grind women-owned farms. And there's also the Dark Roast uh, featuring one of his villains. Excellent. That's fantastic. And this all is single-source coffee from the Colombian women-owned farms that, that Geek Grind uses to source their coffee? Yeah, absolutely. One and the same. That's And that's phenomenal. And I think it's so cool that Geek Grind does that and specifically customizes coffees for the nerd experience, whether you're into nerdy movies like Labyrinth or whether you're into uh, D&D style stuff. They've got a coffee specifically customized for you. Yeah, because they even have uh, coming up uh, this this spring. Um, spring has sprung and we're getting um, some Elven Enlightenment coffee. Um, hey, you can you can now get a they're offering a, a coffee crate gift set comes with a mug with that awesome geek grind artwork uh, and two bags of Elven Enlightenment. That sounds really good. I've been uh, sipping on some Dwarven Dawn these days, and I got to tell you, uh, that's a good blend. That's that's some good coffee right there. So I can only imagine Elven Enlightenment will be just as tasty. And you know what else is great? They not only have these great coffees, they've also got some tea. Absolutely, they do. So, I mean, not everyone's a coffee drinker. I know that's hard for people like you and I to imagine, but uh, they also have tea for those that aren't a big fan. You can choose from Thurston Von Hamilton's London Fogbreaker, which is one of my favorites, an English breakfast tea. Uh, or you can get the Meditations of the Yogi, uh, which is a, a total body tea blend, um, which is uh, served loose for uh, pure tea fanatics. So uh, a couple of great teas to choose from if coffee is not really your thing. Uh, but all of their beverages are high quality. And we here at Disenfranchised really recommend them. Yeah, 100%. So go check out Geek Grind Coffee. Use code FRANCHISE20 at checkout for 20% off your next coffee or tea order. That's geekgrindcoffee.com forward slash disenfranchised and use promo code FRANCHISE20 for 20% off your total order. Geek Grind Coffee. Hi-ho, everyone, and welcome to a rousing, adventurous edition of the Disenfranchised Podcast, where that podcast about the franchises of one, those films that fancy themselves full-fledged franchises before they fell flat on their faces after the first film. My name is Stephen Foxworthy. I am one of your hosts, and uh, my co-host just returned from France, uh, avenging the honor of his sister from that blasted Gaskin, is my co-host, Brett Wright. How are you, sir? Uh, all for one and uh, all for me. That's how it goes, right? Yeah, that's that sounds right. 
No, that sounds right. They that's do right. say that in this movie, right? I mean, yeah. That's, that's the thing. Okay. Yeah, that's what it is. All right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay. Um, and uh, and what movie are we talking about, Brad, if that didn't just give it away? Uh, we're talking about Disney's Three Musketeers. Yes. 1993's The Three Musketeers, a Walt Disney Films production starring Charlie Sheen, Kiefer Sutherland, Chris O'Donnell, Oliver Platt, Tim Curry, Rebecca de Mornay, Gabrielle Anwar, Michael Wincott, Paul McGann, Julie Delpy, and Hugh Oh, Connor, what a film this was for us to watch. Yeah, I mean, the cast, uh, incredible. Uh, the movie, I mean, maybe not incredible. Uh, maybe, maybe, maybe not. We'll see. We'll get into it. Look, there's stuff, there's a lot to like here, but I will admit there's maybe not a whole lot to, there's a whole lot to not like. Sure. Sure, sure. So we're doing The Three Musketeers because it was very recently Tim Curry's birthday. And I threw a poll up on the Twitter asking uh, what film uh, should be the first Tim Curry film that we cover on this podcast. And I was the only person that voted and I voted for The Shadow, which is a movie we're planning on covering at a later time for a th one of our theme months. So um, <laughs> we talked about it and we landed on the Three Musketeers, which features Tim Curry in a delightfully villainous role, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, yeah. This, this is what happens when you guys don't vote for stuff. Like, yeah. You, more you, social media engagement, guys. Come on. You get what we give you when you don't vote. And in, in now, maybe it was my fault for only leaving the poll up for a day. Sure. Whatever. Okay. I'll take, okay. I'll take yeah. that bullet. But that probably still, is guys, your fault. Probably is your fault then. But still, guys. Uh, social media engagement. I mean, if we had more social media engagement, more than me would have probably voted in that poll. Is all I'm saying. Uh, or if you had left it up for more than a day. Quiet you. So we are covering 1993's The Three Musketeers, uh, which is a movie that I watched a lot as a kid. This movie was one of those that was in pretty heavy rotation in the Foxworthy household when I was growing up. One that we... Uh, went back to a lot. My dad was a, a huge fan of everything that Paul McGann does in this movie. Um, and I mean, like everything from the gestures to the way his voice just like cracks constantly, just goes through the roof. Um, Paul McGann is like the MVP for this movie for my dad. Um, but it is to date, I would say, I think the only adaptation of the Three Musketeers that I have actually watched uh, I've not seen any of the others, any of the ones from the 70s. I have not seen the silent film from the 20s with Douglas Fairbanks. Uh, and I have not seen the 2011 Paul W.S. Anderson adaptation either, though. I'm sure we're going to have to force ourselves to watch that at some point. Probably. But I, I fall squarely into the same camp, uh, except for the fact that uh, I did not grow up with this movie. Um, I mean, I knew about it, obviously. Because it was a Disney Films production, and I was about nine or ten years old, so of course I knew about this movie. Absolutely. Um, but uh, I never saw it really. There's something about the Three Musketeers that I think just never interested me. Okay. I don't really know why. Because I mean, nowadays I'm like, you know, you got some debonair swashbuckling dudes doing some cool sword fighting. Right. I'm 100 on board. What's not to love? What's not to love? Um, but now, yeah, I don't know. When I was a kid, no. Is is more dinosaurs, I guess. 
I mean, this was 1993. This was the year to be a dinosaur fan. That's very true. So it's probably why I was like, I don't, I don't want swords right now. I want giant lizards, please. Thank you. Yeah, which again, totally makes sense. Um, I have also never read The Three Musketeers, though I have a number of friends who have. Uh, I'm not opposed to reading uh, large foreign novels. Um, I've read War and Peace and Hunchback of Notre Dame and Les Miserables and all whole bunches of books that are thicker than my skull. But for some reason, I've not read this one. I have a friend who's read it and really loves the novel. He read it, interestingly, right around the time that the Paul W. Sanderson adaptation was coming out and was really excited that they were making a Three Musketeers adaptation. And then he saw the trailer. And suddenly he was not excited anymore. Well, sure. I mean, it's a Paul W.S. Anderson movie. Which I don't think he knew who Paul W.S. Anderson was, but still. I mean, it doesn't matter if you know who he is. He still makes a bad movie. You don't got to know he's a, who he is to know he makes bad movies. But I mean, it's, it's, it's more the turning a swashbuckling action-adventure movie into an action movie. Just a straight-up action movie. Um, which I mean, this, this movie takes its fair share of liberties with the source material. Don't get me wrong. I've not read the novel, but I've read up on the novel. So I can at least get into some of the key differences between the novel and this movie and practically unrecognizable except for, you know, names of characters and a couple of odd situations. I definitely would be interested to hear the differences, but it sounds like there's a lot of them. So we'll get know. into it for sure. And and honestly, like most of them are like big plot differences, just in terms of who's betraying who kind of stuff. So um, like I said, we'll get into it uh, for sure. Uh, but yeah, so this, this is a movie that I grew up really enjoying. I had a lot of fun with it as a kid. Uh, this has been the first time I have revisited it, revisited it, excuse me, probably in decades. So, yeah, uh, pretty fun. Did it hold up? Let's find out. Let's find out. So let's start by getting into this movie. Let's talk uh, plot. And to do that, we will do the plot in 60 seconds, which is uh, the segment of the show wherein uh, one of the two of us, Brett or myself, at the behest of our good friend, the coin of justice, will regale you with the plot of this film in 60 seconds or less. Brett, I have the coin of justice at ready. If you would like to call it in the air. I would be my honor to call tails. Uh, It is heads. So the coin of justice uh, has today uh, given you the honor of uh, regaling us with the plot in 60 seconds. I have 60 seconds on the clock whenever you are ready. All right. So let's, uh, let's get into it, man. All right. I will, as usual, give you the 30 and 10 second warnings. Uh, Are you ready, sir? Yeah, I guess. Then your time. She starts now. All right. So 1625, and you got this young skilled fencer named D'Artagnan who's uh, fighting this uh, other guy because he besmirched his sister's name. Um, But he runs away to uh, Paris where he finds the three different musketeers and meets them one at a time and challenges them to a duel for different reasons. Uh, But then they meet up and uh to fight but they're all there at the same time and the um the uh, the cardinals army's there and uh, they fight and then 30 seconds he's captured um but then shenanigans happen um and then the three musketeers rescue him and then they go off to calais uh where there's a plot to kill someone and then uh 
They have to get back to stop the assassination of the king by the cardinal. Ten seconds. Um, and, but they do, and then they they kill everybody, and then they they you know, punch the cardinal, and that's the end. <laughs> and that is <laughs> Man, I really lost the plot there, like I always do. <laughs> kill everybody, punch the cardinal. Yep. <laughs> That's the plan, man. I want that on a t-shirt now. Kill everybody, punch the cardinal. Kill everybody, punch the cardinal. <laughs> that's, that's my new motto. Okay, goodness. <laughs> I am going to need an hour to recover and just lie down. Oh, boy, that was that was really something, man. Good job. Good job, buddy. Um, Thanks, so, man. yeah, that's, that's basically the plot. We only left out, you know. No, no, it isn't. <laughs> several major characters and about five different plot lines but you know what that's cool that's okay look, that's the... man this movie's way too long okay <laughs> okay first of all first started now in fairness it's based on a book that's well over a thousand pages um but even so uh it's not really that closely based on that book so uh so let's talk uh, I, I, actually let's because we didn't do it before uh, we started. Let's talk a little bit about the Alexander Dumas novel. Uh, it was published in 18, I want to say 44, if memory serves. It is based on an actual human being named Charles de Bats de Castelmore d'Artagnan, uh, who is a literally a French musketeer who served under Louis XIV as captain of the Musketeers Guard. So he and he is basically. He was fictionalized by uh, another author, Gatien de Cortés de Sandras. Uh, and then uh, Dumas was the one who took that book and kind of did his own spin on it, uh, which was, I think, far more heavily uh, fictionalized. And then, of course, subsequent versions have gotten even further and further away from what his actual life was. Um, but the novel itself is set in the mid-1600s, uh, early to mid, uh, 1625 to 1628 is when this novel takes place. It is the first of a trilogy of novels that Dumas wrote about the Three Musketeers. Uh, the second is called uh, 20 Years After, and the third is The Vicomte de Bragelon, which uh, apologies to all people who speak French as a native language, or even recreationally, because I butchered all of that um the third book uh is the one where the the plot of the man in the iron mask comes from the man in the iron mask is part of that third novel okay so not quite a thousand more like 700 pages the book has but still it's 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 a big damn book um but again the novel itself a heavenly fictionalized account of a real dude um and the beginning of the movie is actually fairly I, obviously it does take some liberties but is more in line with what the book is in terms of young man comes to paris to join the musketeers uh pisses off three guys and finds out that they're all musketeers and is still hell-bent on fighting all of them uh in the same day like all of that and you know they're interrupted by the cardinal's guards he joins them and they're victorious together like that's all part of the book after that's where we start to like diverge. The Cardinal is for all intents and purposes, based on what I've read, still kind of the mastermind villain of the piece. Um, but the other villains, um, uh, Rochefort, 
uh, Milady de Winter and the Queen of France are all much more prominent in um, in the book than the Cardinal seems to be. Uh, the Queen is actually having an affair with the Duke of Buckingham. Uh, and so the Cardinal uh, in his, the Cardinal still, his motives are still the same. He still wants war with England, but his approach is different in that rather than signing an agreement with the Duke that they'll convince their heads of state to go to war with each other, he's planning on exposing the affair, which would cause the King to seek retribution against England and the Duke of Buckingham. And of course, he would do this because the king gave the queen a series of diamonds for their wedding, and she gave them to the Duke of Buckingham uh, as a token of her affection. And so Richelieu's the guy behind the scenes kind of twisting the knife, trying to get the war to happen. Um, Rochefort and Milady de Winter are still his kind of chief people. Milady de Winter, of course, still being a spy. The the her app connection to Athos is definitely in the book. Her branding with the fleur de lis also completely in the book. She is executed, just like in the movie. Uh, that all is the same. Well, she's actually executed, I think, in the book rather than um, jumping off the cliff herself. But like, she seduces like way more people uh, in the book than in the movie. <laughs> like way more people. Um, so that's a thing that happens. Constance, the lady in waiting. Um, is not the lady in waiting. She's actually uh, played by Julie Delpy in this film. Uh, she's actually like married to some dude and has an affair with D'Artagnan who falls in love with her. D'Artagnan also having affairs with lots of people in the book. Like it's, this book seems wild to me um, compared to what this movie is. It, it sounds like, I mean, I got to give Disney credit. It sounds like they just, they took out all the uh, not so Disney friendly stuff. They definitely did that. And then just and then kept almost everything else? Uh, they kept portions of other things, for sure. For sure. Um, I mean, there's, you know, the intrigue is there. At the end, though, the, the book ends with uh, Rochefort being arrested after Milady de Winter is killed. And then basically the cardinal once his plan is foiled is kind of impressed by D'Artagnan's gumption and writes a letter uh, to the head of the musketeers. Cause the musketeers are never disbanded in the book either. Like that's not a, that's not a plot point in the book at all. I think it's just so that we can say that there's only three. And so we get rid of all the other ones, I guess. I mean, they come back at the end of the movie. I mean, sure they do, but you can't have that big goose bumpy, ending to the tune of the pop song that accompanied this film, you know, unless you get rid of them all in the first act. Sure. But they, uh, the Cardinal basically writes a letter uh, to the musketeers, uh, the head of the musketeers and leaves the name blank saying that blank should be the leader of the musketeers in that particular area. And D'Artagnan offers it to the other three guys and they're like, no, nah, I'm good. And so D'Artagnan basically becomes the head of the Musketeers. Like the other three guys retire, like Aramis becomes a priest and Porthos decides to marry his wealthy mistress. Athos is like, I'm better than that because <laughs> that's very much Athos's uh, position. And then, uh, yeah, so D'Artagnan, and he becomes a, um, a Musketeer like way earlier in the book than he does in this movie. Cause in the movie, it's like the last thing that happens 
in the book, it's like before the main action of, you know, the finale takes place. It's like before they have the run in with Milady to winter and all of that, he's made a musketeer at that point. So, but again, that can't happen in this movie because the musketeers have been disbanded like in act one, it's like the first thing that happens in this movie. So. Right. But I mean, I kind of, I kind of liked that story arc of like, you know, the musketeers are disbanded. So you get this scene of like, it's like, John Wick digging up that shit in his basement of all the people like, okay, sure. it's time to come, but we're back. We're thinking we're back. Which again, I think this movie owes a lot to Robin Hood. I say again, like I've talked about this on, since we started recording, this is a pre-recording conversation that you and I had. I think this movie owes a lot to Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which came out in 1991 um, because that's very much like a Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves move. Um, like you see Robin riding around and like signaling all the the impoverished peoples um, in England to, to rise up against the the very corrupt sheriff of Nottingham. Like that's the kind of thing that fits in that movie. And you can tell Disney wanted their own like Robin Hood Prince of Thieves style hit on their hands. And so this is what they ended up coming up with. Yeah, which I don't think was a I don't think it was a complete uh miss um there's issues here and i there definitely are. understand why it didn't um it wasn't a hit right at least not the hit that disney was hoping it would be it was it was a modest success but again compared to like the summer blockbusters from earlier that year not really the kind of success story that disney was i'm sure hoping to walk away with no no, I not mean, at all. Well, we'll get uh, we'll get into the box office later. I won't jump ahead to that yet, even though I'm sure, curious. Sure, sure. Oh yeah, we'll um, we'll definitely get into it. Don't even worry about it. Because I'm interested how much money this movie actually did make. Because I mean, it's it's. I it's will a, tell you when I saw the number, I was surprised. I was because I mean, it, look, it's a it's a Disney production in the early '90s, like, and it's a f- fantasy, quote unquote, film, really, <laughs> like a medieval fantasy movie. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know why this wouldn't have hit around this time. Well, and I think it's got a couple of things. It's got a few things going for it, but it feels pretty derivative. And I'll just go ahead and get into this point now since I've kind of already gotten into it. The Robin Hood Prince of Thieves of it all, like there's a lot of similarities there and that you're taking this kind of period novel slash story and basically making a modern 90s adaptation of it which i think the most successful offering to this point would have had to have been robin hood prince of thieves that movie earns 165 million dollars domestic it makes alan rickman more or less a household name um i mean it's huge this movie has a lot of the similar trappings uh plus they cast they cast michael wincott from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, as the henchman of the main villain, who is a venerated British stage actor. I mean, you got a lot of similarities going on that front. And it feels like, to get into the Tim Curry of it all, it feels like Tim Curry's performance is in some ways a response to Rickman's Sheriff of Nottingham, and that both guys are just making a meal out of every word they're saying, like just a four course dinner out of every single word. Then you can tell Curry is just having a blast with this movie. Oh yeah. I love Tim Curry in this movie. He's, he's definitely the best part. Oh, hands down without question. Tim Curry is the best part of this movie. Um, I mean, I love Tim Curry and everything, but sure. this, 
this though this fantastic stuff the, the, my favorite my favorite tim curry scene the one where uh where he's like a, a, a thousand uh, gold for each one of their heads dead or alive and then he, he starts to walk away pauses takes a step back and says i prefer dead he's almost out of frame and he's then almost he doubles, out of frame. And then he doubles back to make sure he's fully in frame and leans into Michael Wincott. I prefer dead. So Perfect. Good. So, so good. good. Like, and that's just like, and that's just like the Tim Curry of it. But like, it's lines like that that feel very reminiscent of the stuff that Rickman is doing in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is generally speaking a movie I'm not terribly fond of because of the Kevin Costner of it all. But everyone else around Kevin Costner is doing just phenomenal work. You got Morgan Freeman in that movie, Alan Rickman in that movie, even to a lesser extent, Christian Slater in that movie. Everyone's doing a pretty good job in that movie. And then there's Kevin Costner going, hey, I'm Kevin Costner, Robin Hood. Nice to meet you with his except that's like 10 times more charismatic than than what Kevin Costner would be capable of delivering. Let's be honest. Yeah, no, the success of that movie is definitely not because of Kevin Costner. Um, Here's the thing, though. People loved Kevin Costner in 1991. I don't really understand why. But honestly, for me, like, it, I don't know. Every time you mention the name Prince of Thieves, I hear in my head uh, Mel Brooks as a rabbi going, you Prince of Thieves, you. <laughs> Which, of course, Men in Tights is a, a, a huge parody of all versions of Robin Hood, but especially of the 91 Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. So, yeah, you know, Rabbi I, Tuckman. I love it. It's so funny. It's every time I hear it in my head. <laughs> you little Prince of Thieves, you. I'm a moyle. Um, but that's the, I, I think it owes a lot to Prince of Thieves. I also think that with the casting of Kiefer Sutherland and Charlie Sheen, you can't help but think that they're really trying to recapture that like hunky, swarthy, swashbucklers who fuck kind of energy of the young guns franchise which is of course a young hunky swarthy cowboys who fuck franchise um so you just you know this is like young swords really or young muskets which i'm sure are the critics at the time got had a field day with those comparisons but you cast two of the young guns in your your three musketeers adaptation yes you're welcoming that comparison more or less yeah, and is it just me, or does like Charlie Sheen seem like he's barely in this movie? Is that just me? No, it's not just you. Um, Charlie Sheen is barely in this movie. Apparently, he uh, came in late. Uh, they were originally trying to get him for Porthos. That fell through. He ended up getting cast as Aramis. Oliver Platt, Chris O'Donnell, Kiefer Sutherland all got like extensive sword fighting and weapons training. Um, but Charlie Sheen was late to all of that because he was filming Hot Shots Part Two at the time. Mm. Uh, so like when the whenever the fighting starts, he is really not on camera nearly as much as the other three because he like the the I don't think you ever maybe once or twice actually see him riding a horse too. Like it, like all that stuff doesn't happen often, which unfortunately those are the scenes that really drag this movie out. So like, if he's not in most of those scenes, he's not in most of the movie, but I would say arguably he was, he and Kiefer Sutherland were the biggest stars in this movie in 1991. Um, I mean, Charlie Sheen, this was like in his heyday, like Charlie Sheen was the hotness at this point in time. 
Uh, let me let me get into the the Charlie Sheen of it all. Actually, while we're while we're sitting here talking about him, this is years before he was constantly winning on uh, Two and a Half Men. So he does like smaller roles. Uh, I mean, he's like the second lead in the movie Lucas in 1986. Small role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and then it also in 1986 he is in Oliver Stone's Platoon, which I am pretty sure wins Best Picture. That year, uh, like huge movie platoon, and he is, I want to say, the lead of that movie. It's like him and Willem Dafoe are like the leads of that movie. Yes, it is the best picture winner that year. And I can't tell based on the because they're doing uh, cast by credit order, and it looks like they're doing order of appearance. So I can't tell. I'm pretty sure he's the lead of that movie, though. So, yeah, I mean, platoon 1986. At that point, he's huge. The next year, he's in. Um, Wall Street, the year after that, he's in Young Guns, uh, Eight Men Out, Major League in 89, Navy Seals in 1990, Men at Work in 1990 as well, uh, The Rookie in 1990, Hot Shots in 91. He has a, a, a bit part in Loaded Weapon in 1993, opposite his brother Emilio Estevez. Also in 93, Hot Shots Part Two and this movie. All kind of coming. So he is... And then the next year, it's Major League Two, Terminal Velocity, 96 is the arrival. And that's when we start, like, the grip on Charlie Sheen starts to loosen. And he kind of, I think, starts to go full into the uh, the drugs, alcohol, and prostitutes phase of his career. Yeah, really, uh, things really start to go downhill for the guy after that. Yeah, well, and then it's... Uh, He's he plays John Malkovich's best friend in being John Malkovich in 1999, which is a really great movie. And he is actually pretty good in it. But then, like, once he starts in the he replaces Michael J. Fox on Spin City in 2000. So just within like the four years between like the arrival and and uh, 2000, he's he's down to TV, which that was at the time before, like prestige television meant that. It basically meant that you were kind of washed out by that point. He is in scary movies three and four. And then he's in, he's on like two and a half men from like 2003 to 2011 before his very public, like complete meltdown that he has around 2010, 2011. Um, Just where he just like implodes in on himself and becomes a human parody of himself. Yeah. He becomes, he just becomes a living meme for a while. Right. Winning Tiger Blood, the whole nine. Like it was, uh, is oh, poor guy. Like I'm, I've not heard much from him since, but I hope he's getting the help that he needs. Uh, he's, he's been in other stuff since he was in Machete Kills, the follow up to the film Machete. He plays himself in Scary Movie Five. He, uh, he shows up on the set for Medea's Witness Protection, which his ex wife, Denise Richards, was in. Um, he's like in the closing credits of that movie like visiting the set. So, I mean, he does show up in things from time to time, but his star is definitely faded at this point. But, uh, you know, like a lot of other actors we've covered, that similar thing has happened to, you know, he's, he's still working off and on. Yeah. He's just, uh, you know, he's not at the level he once was. Correct. Uh, on the other hand, you've got Kiefer Sutherland, who's also kind of a big deal at this point. And unlike, Sheen, I would say some of Kiefer's best best work is in front of him. 
by 93. He's done at this point, Stand By Me in 86, The, the Lost Boys in 87, uh, Young Guns in 88, Renegades in 89, Young Guns 2 in 1990, Flatliners in 1990. Uh, he's in a movie you and I both love, a movie we will talk about on this podcast one day in 1992, Twin Peaks, Fire Walk With Me. Indeed. Um, a Few Good Men in 1992 also. And then he's in The Vanishing and this movie in 1993. Uh, he is a couple years away. He's just a few years away from A Time to Kill in 1996, which he is phenomenal in. Maybe my favorite Joel Schumacher movie, A Time to Kill. Really, really good movie. And then like starts to kind of get burnt out as a film star like shows up in stuff, most of it not particularly good. Uh, like the next big thing, I would say he's the the caller in Phone Booth with Colin Farrell. Like the, Which I guess, is an underrated movie, if you ask me. Right, which I've heard is, is pretty good. Another uh, fairly undervalued uh, Joel Schumacher film. Uh, and then he, by, two, by 2001, he basically takes the sheen route and gets relegated to television except at that point he's like he becomes once again the biggest star in the world because the show he's on is not a, a comedy it's 24 which is like the biggest show like for a while and kind of introduced this era of like prestige television i would say 24 we owe a lot of our uh, the current state of television to 24 yeah that movie or that show is huge huge it was everywhere and it was on for like nine years like that show ran for a long time we forget um but for a lot of people and friends of mine appointment viewing it was one of those shows i tried to get into it at one point uh like in like season three or four and sat down and like started watching it and then i missed an episode and i was like i don't know what the hell's going on on the show anymore i can't watch this so yeah, I think that's why I never got into it because of that problem. I'd heard that's a problem. Like it's it's a show you cannot miss an episode of. Right. Which I mean, if you're able to make those appointments for that appointment viewing is fine. It's great. But, you know, if you're a busy college student who has, you know, rehearsals on most nights of the week, then it's not really something you're able to do, unfortunately. So and I, I mean, I don't know what I was doing around that time, but I, I probably couldn't didn't have the time either. I mean, I could now, but do I care as much now? I can't really say that I do. No. Uh, And he's more or less stayed in the TV zone since 24. Uh, He had, after 24 ended, he had the Fox show Touch, uh, which ran for a season. Uh, And then a few years after that, he was on the show Designated Survivor, which was, as I understand it, pretty popular. Uh, I never watched it, but I know a lot of people who did. And now he's on... Uh, which I think this was associated with um, uh, Quibi. So I don't think he's on it anymore. Uh, But the, uh, the, the fugitive remake with Boyd Holbrook, uh, he was in that as well. So, but again, I think that's, uh, that was a Quibi show. Quibi is now no more. So he's not on that anymore either. Yeah. So, I mean, Kiefer is more or less like, like Charlie Sheen more or less stayed in television, except I think Kiefer's more or less had success with it. Whereas I don't think, sheen really has to the same degree and i suppose speaking of hunky movie actors that ended up deferring back to television uh this is an early chris o'donnell movie as well um his probably one of his first prominent roles of actually his first prominent role would probably be the year before in 
Martin Brest's Scent of a Woman, the movie that earns Al Pacino, finally earns Al Pacino his Oscar. A couple years after that, he does Mad Love with Drew Barrymore. Then later that same year, uh, a movie that we are both on record, another Joel Schumacher film that we, you and I are both on record as not being real huge fans of, uh, Batman Forever, in which he plays a character called, let me check my notes here, Robin. Batman and Robin, then in 97, the movie that killed the superhero genre for two years. Um, actually, Wesley Snipes, I think, is the one who we can credit with keeping it alive. Uh, the Bachelor, Vertical Limit. And then after that, like, seriously, like after 95, 97, he's just in crap. Um, like the stuff he's in is not particularly good. Um, and so, I mean, he keeps working. He's in Kinsey. Um, he's in some other stuff. And then apparently he has a several episode arc on Grey's Anatomy for a little while. Uh, TV miniseries called The Company. And then he gets into NCIS land in 2009 as a part of the uh, a backdoor pilot on NCIS uh, and has been on NCIS Los Angeles opposite the great LL Cool J for like the better part of the last couple of decades, like all of like from 2009 till now, because it shows still on the air. Uh, he's basically just been on NCIS Los Angeles. I mean, look, man, it's a steady paycheck as an actor. You can't really argue with that. Correct. But I just find it really interesting that three of the guys in this movie went from like big, hunky Hollywood leading men to like guys on television, like as they got older. I just find that really interesting. Uh, meanwhile, Oliver Platt will absolutely show up on TV shows, but he is he's more a character actor guy which I think is another part of the reason why he really sings in this is that he's playing a character. Um, and he also seems to be the only character on the show that seems to be having any fun at all. Um, I, so it looks like Oliver Platt actually is a part of the Chicago universe, uh, Chicago PD, Chicago fire, Chicago justice, Chicago med. Like he's in that like television cinematic universe. So he's in like all of those shows, apparently, as a character called Daniel Charles. All right. But I mean, so yeah, there you go. He, all four of these musketeers ended up on TV, which, you know, again, steady paycheck. I do not begrudge them that at all because actors got to work, man. But yeah, and I mean, maybe, you know, maybe they uh, grew a little, shall I say, disenfranchised with, uh, oh. with Hollywood. Oh, okay. And Oliver Platt is, he's, I think he's more likely to show up in stuff just again, because he's a character actor. He's very much a, that guy kind of an actor. You're like, Oh, right. The guy from the thing. Uh, he was in the Warren Beatty film rules. Don't apply. He's in the John Favreau film chef. Like he'll just show up in stuff. He's in X-Men first class, which I don't remember him being in, but apparently he's there. He was on the first season of the TV show Fargo. Like he just shows up in stuff. To which I say, good for you, Oliver Platt. Uh, he was uh, Oliver Babish on The West Wing. Um, like he's he's done a lot of stuff and he's been on a lot of shows. But by the time '93 was hitting, he had only been in like Married to the Mob, Working Girl, Flatliners, Postcards from the Edge, and Beethoven. Oh, and Indecent Proposal and Benny and June. So there, he had a few movies under his belt, but he had not yet hit the caliber. Uh, that he 
is at now. And his very next movie after this will be another movie we can probably talk about on this podcast one day, uh, Tall Tale, in which he plays Paul Bunyan. Oh, man, that unlocked another memory in my brain. Opposite Patrick Swayze as uh, Pecos Bill, I believe. Man, I forgot that movie existed. Yeah, you and everybody else. That movie doesn't exist. That's the reason you forgot it existed. Uh, Roger Aaron Brown as John Henry. Scott Glenn is in that movie. Stephen Lang, Jared Harris. Catherine O'Hara is Calamity Jane. What a cast in that movie. For a, for a movie that bad, it's got a pretty stacked cast. Well, isn't, isn't that always how it goes? It absolutely is. Which I think is kind of a hallmark of a failed franchise starter because you want to get like these really big names in it. And so you kind of stack your cast thinking, okay, we sign them on for like five movies and then they come back in the next one and we give them a lot more to do. And then your movie kind of flops and you never end up making the rest of those movies. Um, That just kind of seems to be a, a steady hallmark for this show. Like something we end up talking about a lot on this show, actually. Yeah. Or you can go the opposite route, like the most recent Mortal Kombat movie, just hire a bunch of people nobody knows. Correct. And uh, honestly, a lot cheaper. Yeah. With the exception of uh, the guy that plays Scorpion, he's a very big, he's very, very big Japanese movie star. Um, Which, I mean, that's the role you need the gravitas for. So that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, he, he, he's great. He's but great. The, the rest of those uh, those actors are are probably more, I would say, athletes like martial artists than they are actors. And uh, I won't lie, kind of shows. Oh, it does. Like, I'm not <laughs> going to defend the acting in that movie. The acting's terrible. Yeah. Uh, but no, look, here's my brief uh, review of the newest Mortal Kombat movie. Uh, it's uh, it's dumb. It's cheesy. It's kind of bad, but I love every freaking second of it. That movie is so good. I love it. it, it I mean, I, I came for the fighting and the fatalities and the stupid ass story i was gonna say if that's what you came for boy it delivered man i got every single bit of it and (laughs) i could not be happier yeah it was not a movie i particularly liked but it was a movie with a lot of stuff in it that i enjoyed so like again i i had fun at the fun parts and i thought the dumb parts were dumb so i thought most of the movie was both dumb and fun at the same time yeah and you know listen guys that's a thing that is okay like every every movie does not need to be oscar worthy it doesn't have to be a star wars it doesn't have to be a mcu film even look movies don't gotta be incredible guys remember remember when movies just used to be movies and we didn't like pin like so much expectation on all these things remember when when a studio could just like release a movie and it would either do well or not do well, and everyone would just collectively move on. I kind of miss that. Uh, times like 1993. Yeah. When, when, when stuff like that could actually happen. Yeah, when this movie came out. Right. Um, Way to get us back on track, Stephen. Hey! But no, I mean, you know, say what you will about Mortal Kombat. Fine, whatever. This movie, directed by a gentleman by the name of Stephen Herrick... Uh, who is uh, best known for, oh man, I've got to go through this guy's filmography because this is weird. Uh, So his first big movie is 1986, a little movie uh, called, a franchise starter in its own right, called Critters. Oh, okay. 
Three years later, he directs another little franchise starter called Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Oh, look at that. Uh, he a TV movie, The Gifted One, in '89, which I don't know, I know nothing about. And then in 1991, the cult classic "Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead." Well, damn. And then in between that and this movie, in 1992, he directs another franchise starter. This is his third movie that ends up spawning a franchise. This one starring uh, Charlie Sheen's brother Emilio Estevez, called "The Mighty Ducks." Damn. Uh, and then in 93, he comes out with this movie. Two years later, he decides to do his I Want to Be an Oscar-worthy director and directs Richard Dreyfuss' Mr. Holland's Opus, a movie I saw in theaters. A movie we recently mentioned. Correct. <laughs> how, how coincidental. Right? Um, had we but known. Uh, and then he in 96, he directs the Glenn Close 101 Dalmatians. Holy Man, which is the Jeff Goldblum, Eddie Murphy movie where Eddie Murphy plays like some kind of guru. Uh, I've never seen it. It looked really bad. Uh, that derailed his career for a few years. And then in 2001, he directs a movie called Rockstar with Marky Mark and Jennifer Aniston, where uh, Mark Wahlberg plays a rock star. Sure. I guess. Sure. Why not? After Rockstar in 2002, he does Life or Something Like It, which I feel like was one of those early 2000 rom-coms. Edward Burns and Angelina Jolie. Oof. Oof. Okay. <laughs> um, and then uh, Man of the House in 2005. Is that the? Is that what I think it is? No, that is the Tommy Lee Jones is uh, a Texas Ranger in a sorority house movie is what that movie is. Um, so kind of after that, he kind of hits the rails uh, a little bit. Um, the movie The Chaperone does a lot of made-for-TV direct-to-video stuff. Uh, does a movie called The Chaperone. The Great Gilly Hopkins in 2015 uh, directs a few episodes of Hawaii Five O, and then uh, a lot of episodes of uh, of the MacGyver TV show. So I mean, he's he mostly then becomes kind of a transitions into a TV movie guy uh after after the bombing of the man of the house so uh yeah from so but his his late 80s early 90s run is uh is pretty unimpeachable really no i could see why they hired him for this and he also feels like at this point because he just done mighty ducks he was kind of like a disney house guy yeah so uh, yeah i absolutely see why they chose him to direct this movie yeah, the original choice was Jeremy S. Chechik, who had done like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, Benny and June. Uh, they wanted Johnny Depp to be in this movie, um, which 1993 Johnny Depp would have like preceded, you know, his big stardom push made him a leading man a lot sooner. Um, and then that ended up falling through. But. Uh, I do think that the beginning of this movie, particularly the scene where Gerard, who is defending his sister's honor as he um, as he gallops through uh, through the the village, feels a lot like um, Gore Verbinski's Pirates of the Caribbean, particularly like the Will Turner and Jack Sparrow fight in the forge at the beginning of that movie Uh, has uh, feels like it has a lot of similarities with the the Pratt Falls guys getting knocked off horses by like jugs of water and various other things like just it has to my mind reminded me a lot of that 
I can see that. Yeah. I don't know if it was just the Disney house style that I like put a button on or what, but it, it seemed very similar to me. Yeah, it's probably a little little from column A, a little from column B. It's Disney. Disney is a formula. Sure. Absolutely they do. Um, but yeah, I mean, this movie, again, we could continue talking about the cast of this movie. Uh, ad nauseum, Rebecca De Mornay, who has far too little to do as Milady De Winter, uh, is great. Gabrielle Anwar, who I know mostly from Burn Notice, uh, was like, oh, it's it's Fiona from Burn Notice. When as soon as she came on screen, Michael Wincott, the, I know you love Michael Wincott because he's in one of your all time favorite movies, uh, The Crow. No, oh, yeah. Yeah, I love, I love him in that movie. I love him in this movie, honestly. I'm going to be honest. He plays a very good villain. He He's a great villain. I would particularly say he's very good at the henchman uh, villain because he does, he basically is playing the same role in this that he plays in uh, Prince of Thieves, like just like the bad guy's lackey. But he actually sword fights in this one. And the way that he sword fights and just kind of like ch- keeps like chucking his head back, like he's some kind of preening peacock. Every time he kind of lunges, he jerks his head back like that. I remember thinking it looked really weird as a kid and I'm watching it now and I'm going, no, that looks awesome. Are you kidding me? That looks phenomenal. So I don't know. I just, yeah. I was just like, he's a cool guy. Michael Wincott, go for yeah. it, man. Yeah, man. I mean, the, the, the opportunity for me to say, I thought the sword fighting in this movie was great. It really was. The, the fight choreography just in general looks really cool uh, throughout this movie. And um, you can tell they put a lot of work into it and you can tell that they, uh, they took their time with it. Uh, the way that it's filmed a lot of low angles on, on the filming of the fight scenes. Like they're always like putting the camera like down below, like down a stairwell or on the floor. Um, particularly when like there were two scenes, I really noticed it during the initial fight scene between the musketeers and the Cardinals guards, when they're fighting in those ruins, there's like a doorway and you could tell there's like stairs leading down. You could tell they just like parked the camera down the stairs and pointed it up at the doorway and then just filmed a bunch of people like fighting going in and out of it. Cause I think they have Athos fighting in there at one point, And then I think they cut back and Porthos is fighting in there at one at another point. So like they really loved that doorway. Uh, and then at the end, of course, during the big scene in the, uh, in the, the throne room, they, they did it again. And it, again, it's one of those things where Athos is fighting a couple of guys and then like you cut away to a couple other things. And then like, it's, I swear it's the same shot, but then it's Porthos fighting a couple other guys, but the camera's like right there on the floor pointed up. So you can see like all the people fighting in the foreground, which lo- looks kind of cool. Uh, it does. Yeah. Uh, the only <laughs> thing that bothered me though, is I, uh, and I got to blame Star Wars for this, but they, they, multiple times these people have the high ground and they're just like, now nah, we're going to jump down to the bottom of the stairs. So I don't have the high ground anymore. Yep. Chris yeah. O'Donnell twice does like these <laughs> over the top flips when he when he like he has an advantage. But acrobats are acrobatics are cool, yeah, man. man. I guess, but at the same time, you know what? High ground's better. All right. Um, and then like during the Athos and Rook for Rochefort, I keep saying Rook for because that's the cheese that I love that Porthos mentions at one point. <laughs> right. But it's Rochefort. Uh, when Rochefort and Athos are fighting at the end, they do these like two, it's it's a two shot or not two shot. It's a, it's a, they're cl- both close-ups, but the camera like swivels around uh, Rochefort and then it cuts back to Athos and it swivels back around the other way around him. And I was like, that looks cool. That looks really cool. We don't see enough like stuff like that 
in in fight scenes anymore that's that's awesome i want to see more stuff like that yeah yeah i mean for i mean to be honest there, there was a decent amount of of sword fighting in this movie but i feel like for a three musketeers movie maybe there could have been more probably there there was a lot at the beginning and a lot at the end Mm -hmm. um you know when they kill everybody and punch the cardinal (laughs) (laughs) the cardinal right right right. um but like there there wasn't a whole lot in between really Mm -hmm. which is weird as long as this movie is well, and that's the thing is the fight scenes are really what in the chase scenes, because there's like three chase scenes in this movie, yeah. feel like the the part that really dragged this movie out. Like during the big chase scene where the musketeers rescue D'Artagnan from the chopping block, literally the chopping block. Uh, I remember that scene as a kid being really exciting. And I'm watching it now going, this is tedious because they're just galloping away. And then like, they'll like, cut to outside and it'll just show them writing and then they'll cut back inside and someone will quip or someone will give directions and then they'll cut outside and there'll be people chasing and maybe some guy gets knocked off a horse or something. Um, but like they're the, the, this goes on forever before they finally end up getting away from the guards. And, and it of course culminates in that way that most early nineties action things did with a giant explosion as they set the carriage on fire with Brandy and then push it down a hill into a giant, uh, wagon carrying barrels of powder and of course you know they're carrying barrels of powder because one guy falls someone in the background yells they're heading for the powder wagon and then one guy falls and the barrel pops open and all this gunpowder spills out of it so you know oh it's gonna blow up and then surprise it blows up yeah <laughs> there's there's just so many places in this movie where like a little bit of better editing like just chop it down because you know when they're getting away from the chopping block like it's entertaining because of the cuts to inside when they're quipping about the different types of wine and all the gold and redistribute this wealth for me and right and you know making joke and uh keeper sutherland which one is he i always forget his one keeper sutherland's athos athos yeah when when he actually has d'artagnan take the reins so he can drink like, right it's, yeah it's just the- is there's a lot of good stuff there but like there's it, it Everything around it is just it, kind of too bloated. Yeah, and that's and that is, I think, probably one of my chief criticisms. Is this movie could have been a lot more fun, were it not so bloated. And I think bloated is really the right word for it because it is. It's just unnecessarily engorged, I guess, for lack of a better word. There's just too much stuff. Like there wasn't a the editor wasn't good enough at like cutting the things that needed cut. Uh, I mean, the Milady to Winter stuff already feels very heavily cut but also feels completely unnecessary to the overall plot probably could have been cut altogether. If the Dumas purist probably wouldn't have pitched a fit because how can you make, and also there's like no women in this movie. They're yeah. okay. I'm sorry. There are three and they have nothing to do. Yeah. There are three female characters with names and again, nothing to do. They're all, I mean, with, with the exception of lady de winter, like they're just kind of relegated to, love interests non-speaking love interests until the end when the queen sort of talks a little bit but uh i mean she's kind of she's kind of talking a little bit throughout but she doesn't have much to say and uh it feels like any like this movie does not pass the bechdel test at all oh no because the only scene where two women are talking to each other they're talking about a man so 
Like it's, uh, it's, 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 it's rough is what it is. Um, so, I mean, you can't, even though the Milady to Winter stuff is probably the most useless stuff to this movie, you can't cut it. Cause then you cut like any interesting female participation in this film whatsoever. Yeah. The, the only, yeah. The only interesting female that maybe has a little bit of agency, but right. not that much agency really, when you think about it, I mean, in the grand she, scheme of things, no. No, I mean, to be fair, I will say, I even wrote it down. Uh, one of, what I thought was one of the best lines in the movie is spoken by Lady De Winter. When she has the knife to the Cardinal's groin. She's like, with a flick of my wrist, I can change your religion. Sure. Like, that was the great line. Like, so kudos, giving it to her. Right. Um, but that's, that's about it. Yeah. I mean, it. yeah. It, and on, I'll be honest with you. The women in this movie are probably painted a little better than they are in the original Dumas novel. But again, I think they're they're given even less to do. So I don't know what the greater sin is being painted as, you know, just a, a treacherous gender or um, being given like nothing to do, no agency, no real character to speak of. Yeah, I don't really know. Uh, Julie Delpy, I want to talk about her a little bit because the very next year she would be in one of my favorite film trilogies whatsoever. Uh, the Three Colors trilogy, uh, Three Colors White. She plays Dominique, a uh, very talented French actress, uh, Julie Delpy. Uh, very big, f- very big fan of hers. She is probably most notable to people uh, from her participation in the before Richard Linklater before uh, series, the Before Sunset, Before Midnight, Before Sunrise. I probably got the order of those completely mixed up. I've never actually seen those films. Uh, but I have heard very good things about them, but I hear she's absolutely phenomenal in those, but she's just one of those. Whenever she shows up, I'm like, Oh, okay. I know I'm in good hands. She had like a very brief role in age of Ultron. She played like the black widow's handler in like the weird Scarlet witch induced flashback sequences. Uh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's uh, was also in the terrible, uh, remake of the absolute masterpiece or not remake, but sequel to the absolute masterpiece of a uh, 80s vampire film, uh, American Werewolf in Paris. Uh, the original, of course, being the great American Werewolf in London, uh, but she's apparently in the sequel there. So uh, a, a movie I have not seen, but, you know, she's in it. It's, so. it's not good. That's what I've heard. No. Um, she's in Jim Jarmusch's Broken Flowers. Like she's she's been in some stuff, but Again, it's like she never really hit in America the way you could tell they really hoped she would. So which is which is a bummer because I think she is very talented and uh, very good. And this role is so far beneath her. It's kind of ridiculous. Um, Kind of wish that she had had uh, uh, that character had been given a little more to do, even if it was the treacherous character from the book. But yeah, so I mean. Uh, we can we a little Paul McGann. We probably need to mention Paul McGann because the last time we uh, talked about a movie with the Doctor in it, with one of the iterations of the Doctor in it, you managed to piss off all Whovians. So I want to see if you can redeem yourself and tell me which Doctor Paul McGann was. Oh no! Don't make me do this. <laughs> I don't. I don't want to be redeemed. I do not desire to be redeemed. He's the eighth Doctor. Look, you know, look, I know. Okay, I learned my lesson. I just I'm not gonna own up to it. I just I just never will. That's fine. But so the last but the last film we talked about with the doctor in it was Sylvester McCoy, who is the seventh doctor. 
uh, the one that Paul McGann took the role for. And Paul McGann, probably one of the funniest characters in this movie, if I'm being real honest, um, playing the uh, the goofy Gerard, who is <laughs> throughout the entire movie only trying to defend his sister's honor and uh, just being a complete and total buffoon the entire time. Yeah, and much like last time, I did not recognize him like, yeah. at all. Like, Paul McCann is a really, like, he's, an, again, he's another character actor, so he's very much able to kind of disappear within the character. Like, I'm looking at his IMDb, and I'm realizing he's an Alien 3. I don't remember him being an Alien 3. No, neither do Granted, I. It's been like a year and a half since I've seen it, but still, like, he never, he didn't really stand out. Michael Wincott also in uh, Alien 4, Alien Resurrection, so... There's the alien connection for this movie. If you were looking for it, there it is. I, I wasn't expecting one, but you know, you love to see it. And of course, Paul McGann's big movie, which I still have not seen and I need to, it's on my list uh, with nail and I, where he plays and I cool. So, I haven't heard of it. So you, Oh yeah. It's a very, uh, very well-known and well-regarded uh, British comedy uh, about, um, in 1969, two substance-abusing unemployed actors retreat to the countryside for a holiday that proves disastrous. I mean, that sounds great. Sure. Nothing, nothing about that sounds... And it's it's Paul McGann and Richard E. Grant, who are both actors that I love. So, hard to go wrong. Yeah, it does not sound like uh, that's going to be a bad time. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, those are... I mean, in terms of the actors, I think we've talked about just about everybody except the man of the hour himself. Uh, and I figured we'd probably just want to gush for a little bit over Mr. Tim Curry. I mean, yeah, we sort of did a little bit already, but yeah, he's uh, yeah, he's he's great. I love him. I love him in Rocky Horror Picture Show. I love him in Home Alone Two, Lost in New York, which um, is probably my first introduction to him. If I'm being real, real honest, uh, the first time I ever saw Tim Curry in a movie was probably Home Alone Two, Lost in New York. Yeah, and uh, but I gotta say, his his my favorite performance of his uh, in Clue. Love Clue. Clue is so good. Clue is friggin' great. If you haven't seen Clue, please go watch Clue. Clue is great. He's he's also great in Muppet Treasure Island, uh, where he plays Long John Silver and like the most knowing winking to camera Long John Silver ever. During the the, the his musical number, at one point he says the line, "This is my only musical number," which <laughs> is phenomenal to me. Um, but also did a lot of voice acting. He was on Gargoyles. He was on Captain Planet. He was in a show called Bruno the Kid. He was on the animated show The Mask. Um, he was the villain in, oh, what's the name of that stupid, Mighty, uh, the Mighty Ducks cartoon that they made? Speaking of the Mighty Ducks, he was on Duckman. Like, he just shows up in every, he played gomez adams in the adams family reunion direct to video movie that they made after raul julia died like dude just showed up in stuff and he had one of the most unmistakable voices ever uh was originally cast as the joker in the batman animated series actually but was deemed too scary right i remember hearing that story yeah and i totally get that because look at uh he was he was the villain in fern gully yeah. Oh, um, terrifying in Fern Gully. He was terrifying in Fern Gully. And his song still probably the best song in that whole movie. Oh, without um, a doubt. Um, the, let I mean, they really should have let Tim Curry sing more. I said let currently let, but 
unfortunately the guy is in no condition to really do much singing these days. Like he's suffered uh, a number of strokes. Like he's just, he doesn't seem like he's doing as well as he could be, but he did most recently play uh, the criminologist in the 2016 uh, Rocky horror picture show. Let's do the time warp again, TV movie. And was the only person in that original cast of that movie to return for uh for that reboot probably the only person they asked honestly you know i mean maybe because i well i can't imagine nobody else in that cast wanted to come back but who knows here's the thing i think he was probably their first choice and since he said yes they didn't have to go down the list that's would, a fair point would be my guest uh would be my guess because i mean after that you're like who do we cast as a criminologist if tim curry doesn't do it barry bostwick sure I mean, the person you think would be involved, but re- weirdly wasn't, uh, is, of course, uh, the man who created it, Richard O'Brien. But yeah, like you, he was he's the guy you would think would be involved, um, but did not seem to be, uh, which is a bummer. Yeah. I, I mean, I thought you were going to say meatloaf, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Meatloaf <laughs> will show up for just about anything. <laughs> you can tell they didn't ask meatloaf because meatloaf didn't show up. That's um, true which is, 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 is what happened there. But yeah, no, it's uh, like, and here's the, like every subsequent riffraff after Richard O'Brien has just seemed um, like weak. Like Richard O'Brien is in my mind, the only riffraff there ever will be. Like you just can't, the, the fact that anyone continues to try to play that role, just, hmm, I don't know. I don't like it, but yeah, big, no. big Rocky horror fan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. Like, like Rocky horror. Uh, like Tim Curry, man, I've I've never been disappointed in a Tim Curry performance, although there are a number of them that I haven't seen. So because the dude did, as we mentioned, a lot of movies. Sure. He also did some video games. Um, one he is most notable for that has surfaced recently on the old Internet, um, I believe, is a Wing Commander game. OK, I could, I could be wrong on that, but his delivery of a certain line. Oh, uh, Yes. I know exactly uh, what you're talking about. Is uh, is iconic and just incredible. <laughs> Where he puts a Y in that word that does not normally have a Y. Spice. Spice. Yeah, it's it's delightful. In fact, that movie was make it or that clip was making its rounds on Twitter on his birthday. Uh, so I watched it way more times than I probably should have. Um, but it's great, and you love to see it. Uh, with regard to the making of this film, there I was really not able to find much information. This is not a movie that a lot of information has been written about, uh, probably because it's a fairly forgettable mid '90s action movie. Like it's it's pretty much on par for the course for its time. There's not a lot of like behind the scenes machinations. Uh, really, the only stuff that is written about this movie. Uh, is kind of what I've already said. Jeremiah Chechik was originally signed on to direct. Johnny Depp was supposed to star. That fell through. They approached a number of different actors to play a number of different roles. They wanted Brad Pitt or Steven Dorff for D'Artagnan. They both turned it down. Uh, According to Wikipedia, they also asked Billy Baldwin, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Al Pacino, Johnny Depp, Carrie Elwes, and Gary Oldman to play various parts in this movie. Uh, have no idea who Jean-Claude Van Damme would have played in this movie, though it seems pretty clear they wanted Al Pacino or Gary Oldman for the um, for the Cardinal. 
That seems pretty obvious. Yeah, but is that list just a Arnold Schwarzenegger and Mario Brothers situation, or is it? I like, mean, it, it's entirely possible. Yeah, these, these aren't people they actually intended to be in this movie. They were just big names at the time. Just names we've got to check off a list. Yeah. Um, and it also looks like um, Winona Ryder was initially being considered for Milady to Winter, um, but she pulled out, and the part went to Rebecca De Mornay. So, hmm. there you go. Just some names associated with this this movie. Again, not a lot really written about this movie, unfortunately. So we can't really go too deep into it beyond just the cast and kind of where they're all at. So let's let's get to that question you had earlier, Brett. How much did this movie make? Uh, this movie was released on November 12th, 1993. This movie opened at number one uh, to $10.6 million dollars. Uh, it opened against uh, the top three movies all in their first week of release. Uh, number two was Carlito's Way. Uh, the Brian De Palma film uh, earned $9 million. And then the in number three, the movie My Life, which that's not that Michael Keaton movie, is it? I'm going to find out. And of course, it's not well known, known enough to be on the first screen. It is exactly the movie I thought of. Michael Keaton figures out... Uh, that he is finds out that he's terminally ill. And so he starts making a videotape for his son, for his very young infant son. Uh, and it is uh, just an emotional tearjerker wreck of a movie that melted me into a puddle the first time I saw it. Yeah. Uh, it sounds like that kind of movie and I'll avoid that. Thank you very much. <laughs> no problem. Uh, number four in its fifth week down from number one, the week before is uh, Tim Burton's the nightmare before Christmas. Ooh, you love to see it. And then in number four, which had been at number four the week before and uh, had been uh, has been in theaters for seven weeks, a movie that I saw in theaters, uh, Cool Runnings, about a, uh, a little bobsled team from a little country called Jamaica. Man, that's, that's another. It wasn't as buried as deep as Tall Tale was, but it was sure. buried in there. Sure. Uh, also, rounding out the uh, top 10, a movie we could potentially cover one day at number six, The Beverly Hillbillies. Uh, number six, or in seventh place, rather, down from six the week before in its second week, Look Who's Talking Now, uh, which is the third sequel or the second sequel in the Look Who's Talking series. This time it's dogs. I can't believe it's, they made three of those movies. It's dogs now, Brett. I watched all of them last year. That's That's the thing you shouldn't believe. Because I yeah. went on Amy Heckerling deep dive last year and uh, she directed the first two of those. And I figured, well, the third one's streaming. Might as well watch it. Oof, bad move. I can only imagine. Because it can't be the kids anymore because they're grown up enough to talk now. So it's got to right. be the dogs now. And the dogs are voiced by Danny DeVito and Diane Keaton. Yep, I know. It's weird. <laughs> um, in number eight, the movie that wrecked the franchise, it's uh, RoboCop 3 down in its second weekend down from three the week before like that one fell far uh and uh number nine is uh, everyone's favorite inspirational uh sports movie set in uh indiana actually i think it would probably be everyone's second favorite inspirational sports movie set in indiana it's rudy and uh in number 10 is the uh, flesh and bone the movie flesh and bone in its second weekend a down from number two. So that one fell even further than RoboCop three. 
but it made a grand total of $53.7 million, uh, which again, Robin Hood Prince of Thieves grows to about $165 million. So this is not the hit that they were anticipating. Uh, it did modestly well. Uh, what I would say probably did even better than this movie was the song associated with this movie, the uh, based on the Musketeers uh, theme, All for One and All for Love, was a song of the same name, All for One, All for Love, uh, which was sung by Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and Sting, uh, the three biggest names of the early 90s. And that song went to number one on the Billboard charts in 94, January, I think, 94, and stayed there for three weeks. So, and, and that, of course, here's the thing that all, another thing that boggled me about this movie is how many times the score managed to work the pop theme into the movie. Like anytime something like really like action forward happens, it's a dun, 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 theme, like from the song pops in and you're like, that's the chorus of the damn song. I don't know if I ever noticed that. I but. couldn't help but notice it every damn time it showed up. And of course, this is a, another thing that it borrows from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, because everything I do, I do it for you. Brian Adams, big song from that movie was absolutely huge. And so this is absolutely trying to do that. And ultimately, that's not even as successful. So this movie just feels like an ill-advised attempt to try to recapture the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves magic, as it were, and just doesn't seem quite able to do that. And, then, you know, it's, it's funny to look back at, like, early 90s or 80s or, you know, any of the other decades we've covered and compare them to what's going on now with franchises, right? We're like, it seems that moviegoers and people in general are smarter than Hollywood gives them credit for because Hollywood is always like, you love franchises and shared universes, right? Well, you're going to freaking love this. And then they now everything's a franchise and failed universe, uh, the franchise or a cinematic universe or yeah. something. And then, but then they don't. They don't like these things, even though Hollywood thinks they're going to. So you look back at this, and you're like, all right, everybody loves Robin Hood, the Prince of Thieves, you. And you're going to love this movie because it's basically the same, right? Right. Yeah. They're all suckers for this stuff. Mm-hmm. No, they didn't because it's not the same. It's not. They tried. And it just, it's, it's not the same. Or people are just that smart to be like, look, I've seen this already. You know, just just because you love a peanut butter and jelly sandwich doesn't mean you want to eat a peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day of the of the week. Correct. You know what I'm saying. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. And I would say Hollywood, just in general, seems to be a very reactionary institution. In that, every time something hits big, every other studio basically says has the same thought at the same time. Oh, we need to be doing that. We need to be doing that thing. Uh, and so they try to, and I, which is, I think it's something we see a lot on this podcast because of the nature of our premise being franchises that never hit. And a lot of these things seem to be derivative of another thing that was more popular or that did get sequels. So it just, I mean, this feels like it should be another one of Stephen Herrick's franchise starters. I mean, the dude had four up to this point. And then this is the first one that doesn't hit. And then after that, none of them do. 
So, but like it, it's it, Hollywood is very reactionary. Like this worked, but they're so reticent to try anything new. Whereas if you're not trying anything new, you're not advancing the medium, which I think is why so many um, critics are so frustrated by the fact that Hollywood has just been churning out superhero movies for the last was probably like decade and a half by this point is because like make other movies advance the advance the uh advance the medium that's why scorsese is so frustrated is because the the man loves cinema and instead what hollywood keeps putting out is like the fast food equivalent of cinema stuff that can be made for relatively cheap but turn a high profit whereas he wants to make like a really elegant multi-course dinner and 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 serve it on a on a silver platter and he can't get the funding to make those things because everything's going into the fast food apparatus and so you can see why people like that are really frustrated and again it's something we see a lot again here just because of what our premise is and it's because of how reactionary hollywood is like you can't even get big name filmmakers to be able to make movies because the only thing hollywood wants to make is stuff that's based on established ip and that's really frustrating it's it's the, they want to do the safe bet, and I, I've said this before. I think that's Hollywood now is only going to double down on that for at least you know two or three years just to recover Absolutely. from twenty twenty. So you know, expect to see more safe bets in the cinema for a long time. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. We also should mention that it looks, for all intents and purposes, that we are getting something along the lines of a three musketeers shared cinematic universe based. I'm, I'm guessing, uh, and it looks like it's going to be a French shared cinematic universe. Um, there are two films currently in pre-production. One is called the three musketeers D'Artagnan, the other, the three musketeers Milady, And, uh, they both star Ava green and Oliver Jackson Cohen. Uh, also Vincent Cassell, as uh Athos which I'm kind of excited to see that that's some fun casting uh but an actor named Francois Civil as D'Artagnan uh Vicky Creeps her of uh Phantom Thread fame as Queen Anne that'll be awesome I love Vicky Creeps so uh and I know you're a big Ava Green fan but like do we really need a three musketeers shared cinematic universe like I'm hoping this is more like a movie and a counterpoint to that movie than an actual shared cinematic universe. But the fact that we've got two of these movies in product in pre-production at the same time worries me. Sure. Do we need that? No. Do I want to see Ava Green get more work? Yes. So. I mean, sure. And I get that. But, you know, by the same token, there's there's got to be a better way, as the man once said. So I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, but yeah, th- that looks to be French. I'm looking there's the only photo on the IMDB page is uh, a picture of the two scripts next to each other. And they are in French. Uh, the The titles on both are in French. So, hey, uh, if it's French, maybe maybe it'll be good. I don't know. But uh, that's that's one thing I've not really seen is a French adaptation of this property. So I'd be interested to see that. But uh, maybe when that comes out, we'll talk about one of the many other attempts at kickstarting a Three Musketeers franchise. Um, we didn't really talk about the history of Three Musketeers in film. Maybe I'll save that for the next time we talk about this property because um, we'll have other opportunities. The aforementioned Paul Tom- Paul W.S. Anderson one, not Paul Thomas Anderson, 
Paul W.S. Anderson. I always want to do that, and I don't know why. Um, but <laughs> very Paul, different. Very, very different. Very different. Paul W.S. Anderson movie. Um, we can absolutely talk about probably uh, potentially the man in the iron mask we could talk about. Uh, I think there was another movie called just the musketeer that we could probably talk about too. So uh, we could have probably done our own three musketeers theme month at some point, but it's probably better that we didn't. No, nobody needs that. Uh, the tomatometer score for this movie is a 28% uh, certified rotten. The critics consensus it's starry trio of do gooders may promise to fight uh all but this uh three musketeers is a slickly unmemorable update bound to satisfy very few uh metacritic score is 43 and uh the imd or i'm sorry the letterbox ranking is 2.9 brett where did you land on 1993's the three musketeers um i think i'm landing on a 2.5 like if I could give it like a 2.75, I would like it is solidly mediocre. It is solidly in the middle. It's not bad. It's not good. It's just there. It is. Is it entertaining? Parts of it are. Uh, Is is it boring? Parts of it are. Parts of it are. Um, So like it's, this is the definition of just a mediocre middle of the road movie. Yeah. I buy it. Uh, I'm giving it, I'm giving it a three and that's all entirely due to nostalgia goggles. Uh, I told you before we started that when I started this movie, I could quote, like I quoted Tim Curry's line before he even said it, his first line of the movie. I was like, that's great. Uh, I like this. This is fantastic. In the first like 20 minutes of this movie, rip. Like they're so fun. And then like the actual plot of the movie kind of starts and you're like, oh, what the hell have I gotten myself into now? Like it's just, it, it gets increasingly less fun as the movie progresses, sadly. Um, and then then tim curry shows up on screen you're like yes i'm having fun again and And then then he's gone and you're like yeah you get you get dower Kiefer sutherland and wooden charlie sheen yeah then 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 porthos shows up on screen again and you're like yeah i'm having a good time (laughs) yeah oliver platt uh my i I would say if if paul mccann was my dad's favorite part of this movie i would say porthos was probably my dad's second favorite part of this movie particularly when the uh uh parker uh the the asian henchman of milady to winter like pulls out those swords and starts doing the like ha the kung fu moves and porthos does a and flicks the thing and like drops him down and then does that little wave my dad loved that scene loved that scene um and i'm almost 100 percent sure this is one of those phantoms of a memory in my head i'm pretty sure that was in the trailer 100 percent. that was absolutely in the trailer of this movie like the trailers for this movie were very porthos heavy again because he's the only character that seems like he's enjoying what he's doing true yeah Kiefer Sutherland and charlie sheen look like they would rather be anywhere else and Chris O'Donnell's like trying to keep up, but you're just like, uh, I mean, maybe next time, Junior. Porthos is the only one that seems to be having a good time. Yeah, which which is I mean, my, like, he's your favorite and my favorite and everyone's favorite. Yeah, at least like Kiefer Sutherland, at least like that's his character, but like, like Charlie Sheen doesn't have any excuse. Particularly for an actor as charismatic as Charlie Sheen is, there's no excuse he's playing Aramis this wooden. Uh, no. He's. I mean, I think he's trying to play him as like 
and, and like the character beats, I think are very similar to what's in the, the, the book as well, but like he should be charismatic and charming, but I think he's trying to play more the, the chaste, like priestly individual um, and maybe attempting to play the internal conflict of the character. Cause that is Aramis's internal conflict. Like he wants to be like this pious, righteous individual, but he also really likes girls. Uh, and so there's like this kind of struggle within him. Uh, I don't see any of that. I just see a guy who looks like he's bored to be in this movie. Yeah. That, yeah and he's not even in the movie that much. So no, no, he doesn't get an opportunity to maybe build on what he was trying to do in the few scenes he's in. So it yeah. just comes off as bad. Or or maybe those got cut. And But again, I can't imagine this movie being longer. This is a long movie. So long. So and, many times I was just like, this movie's and, still going. An unnecessarily long movie. It's 105 minutes. It's almost two hours. Here's the thing, though. 105 minutes. It's less than two hours. But it feels a lot longer than 105 minutes. It sure does. And I don't know like why. Like a lot longer. Like it's, that's only like an hour 45. That's not that long. But it feels much longer because there are scenes in it that just kind of drag. And it's unfortunately, it's mostly the fight scenes uh, and the chase scenes that, that really ultimately end up doing it to this movie. At least that's my diagnosis. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. So... So yeah, um, Brett, anything else you want to say about 1993's The Three Musketeers? No, no, I think I think that's everything. Tim Curry's great. That's what I'll say. I'll say that again. Tim, Tim Curry's great. It cannot be understated. We will have other opportunities to talk more about Tim Curry as well because he's great and he's been in a fair few failed franchise starters. So we'll, we'll get the opportunity to talk about him for sure. Uh, but for now... Um, my name is uh, Stephen Foxworthy. You can find us, uh, the Disenfranchised Podcast, on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. We are at Pod. You can email us at disenfranchpod at gmail.com to request episodes or just let us know what you think of the episodes that you've already heard. We would love to hear from you. Um, you can also please give us a rating and review on your pod catcher of choice. We would surely appreciate it. Five stars in particular, especially if they are Apple podcasts, we would really appreciate that. Uh, just let us know how you think we're doing. And if you have any suggestions for episodes you want to see us do, let us know that there as well. Um, I am again, Stephen Fox really, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and letterbox at Chewy walrus brett where can we find you on social media uh you can find me on letterboxd at uh gunslinger fire and on instagram uh at sus sus underscore warlock all right so that is all we have for this episode i'm actually very excited about the other episodes that we've got coming up this month they should all be fairly awesome uh so until next time i'm stephen foxworthy for my co-host brett wright and myself all for one and um what one one for all one for all that's, that's what, it what it is that's what it is we've been Damn it. Oh, the whole time oh. <laughs>